Um, go and open up your Bibles to John chapter 16. Um, I don't know. Will, did you mention it? Situation? You did? Okay. So, pinch hitting. Grateful to be pinch hitting. And excited to look at this passage together. Really, as I was singing that last song, uh, could you go back there? If you go back to the second to last slide. There we go. The goal of this morning is that second line. How unwavering our hope. Read John 16, 33 with me. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You can be, children can be dismissed, and we can all be seated. <laughs> Let's take as our starting point this morning, the beginning of verse 33, a purpose statement Jesus gives us, purpose statement. He says, I have said these things to you that, so that, in me you may have peace. Purpose statement. Jesus means for his disciples to have peace. He's discussing this with his disciples in the upper room, situationally, since chapter 13 of John. Uh, He is preparing his disciples here to face just about the most unpeaceful experience any of us could ever imagine. Jesus knows that in just a few hours, his path is going to lead him to the cross. And he understands what that's going to feel like. For himself and for his disciples. The Lord is to be killed. And they will scatter and weep. They are about to face the sting of death Head on. And not only are they going to face it in Jesus' death, but the rest of their life is going to be marked by it. They are to be marked men. The rest of their earthly existence will be characterized by trials. And Jesus is preparing them. But I think it's just striking here. It is just striking that he doesn't leave them to say, Life is going to get tough. Your emotions are going to be all over the place. He says, I'm saying these things so that you may have peace. So that you as a disciple, we as disciples, can face the fright-filled existence on this earth with peace. And so the question is, what is this peace? How does it come? Where do we get it? Jesus says earlier in this discussion that he has with his disciples, in John 14, 27, he says, Peace, I leave with you. My peace, 
I give to you. And then he makes this contrast. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let's do this contrast for a bit. What is the difference between the peace of the world and Jesus' peace? What is the difference? What is it that he's giving to his disciples that the world can't give? Let's begin with the peace of the world. Let's think about that for a little bit. What peace does the world offer? What peace does the world offer? Well, mainly, mainly, the peace offers, or the the world offers external peace. Let's think about that. When we think of peace in just a natural, worldly way, we think freedom from conflict, freedom from pain, freedom from loss, freedom from noise, parents. Can I just get some peace? (laughs) You mean, can I just get some quiet? Freedom from noise. And so, because we tend to define it that way naturally, if something comes our way that threatens that peace, what's our natural inclination? How does the world pursue peace in that moment? Flee. Avoid. One of the the really popular catchphrases right now, and I get on the positive side what they're trying to say, but think about it. Build boundaries. Make boundaries around yourself so that bad things can't come in. How are you going to fight for peace? You're going to avoid any area or person or thing that threatens it. It's a, a fleeing. The world offers peace by escapism. But we all know intuitively, and the world sees this, and, and they, they understand this. There's still common grace at work in them to see this. Escapism isn't going to solve the problem. And so as much as people in the world want to say your marriage is, is uh, stressful, get out of it. They don't always say that, do they? It's too simple. I like that. Yeah. People will say other things too. They'll do things like um, they'll have strategies for how to pursue peace internally in the midst of difficulty, won't they? We get things like reframing strategies, positive self-talk, optimism, goal-setting, all in an effort, and I, I don't want to bash those things in their general categories. Those can be helpful in the rightful place. But what they're offering, they cannot follow through on. How do you reframe death in a way that makes it feel good? You can't. How do you positive self-talk your way through the rebellion of a child? You can't. The brokenness of sin runs too deep. Out there is pervasive brokenness. You can't flee it. You can't reframe it. But there's also, in here, pervasive brokenness. You can't flee yourself. You can't talk away in your mind your own failures and brokenness. The world offers peace and to some measure can give some aspects of peace. I'm not saying all of those are wholly unfruitful in different capacities, but I am saying that 
they don't offer what Jesus is offering. They can't get us where Jesus wants us to be. You can't run away and you can't reframe to get to the peace that Jesus is talking about. We all long for it. It's, it's deeply ingrained in us to want this. There's something about the image of God in us and the way God is still working in the world that causes us to see that peace is what we were created for. The whole world wants it. We want peace. How do we get there? We need it from Jesus. So let's think now about the peace Jesus offers. How, how is the peace he offers different? In Philippians 4-7, we get this really remarkable statement. Jesus says, the peace he offers is a peace that surpasses understanding. Now that can mean it's far greater than we could ever imagine, and that is true when you're experiencing it. But I think it also means it isn't conditioned by the situation. It moves outside of what would be expected in the moment. The, the peace of Christ, let's, let's try a definition here. The peace of Christ is an internal rest in the midst of external chaos, unrest. Internal rest in the midst of external unrest, right? How do we live in a broken world that's full of chaos and live in peace like Jesus is offering? We need our internal rest to be stable, so how's that going to come? Let's further the definition. The peace of Christ is internal rest in the midst of external unrest because we rest in Jesus. There's a because. And we can't miss it. And the rest of our passage here this morning is getting us at that because. The peace of Christ is internal rest in the midst of external unrest because we rest in Jesus, because we belong to Jesus. So rather than calling us to build boundaries against the storms of life, Jesus calls us into the storms of life with a restful heart. It's totally miraculous. It's beyond our understanding that we could operate this way, and yet it's our inheritance. It's what comes with knowing Jesus. And my purpose here for the rest of this time is to Help us feel it. Help us see it. Help us to know this peace. I don't take it for granted that all of us are facing things right now. I don't need to elaborate all the different things we could be facing. You know it. The brokenness of the world is constantly pressing in. The brokenness of your heart is constantly pressing out, wanting to show itself. You feel it in your body decaying, and you're, you're afraid. You feel it in broken relationships, and you're afraid. You feel it. We were just at a conference as elders this week, dealing with manhood and womanhood, and you know the cultural movements to break down gender distinctions, and all the fear that can surround that for the church. We're not blind to the things in the world that are fearful. We walk through this world with eyes wide open, don't we? And so you're going to be tempted to be afraid. That, that's just a normal experience of life in this world. And yet, Jesus doesn't want us to be. Jesus doesn't leave us there. So why would we want to stay there? 
he has a peace for us. In the next part of this verse here, in verse 33, Jesus gives us two peace-inducing certainties. Two peace-inducing certainties. Two truths, two certainties that will help us walk through this world in a way that is receiving the peace he has to offer. How do we as Emmanuel Baptist Church function with internal rest in the midst of the chaos of our world? Two peace-inducing certainties. Certainty number one. Look at it with me. In Jesus, you will face trouble. Certainty number one. In Jesus, you will face trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus tells his disciples. In this world, you will have tribulation. Okay, expectations are powerful, are they not? Expectations are powerful. How we enter an experience will dictate how we carry forward in that experience. Think about it in terms of um, learning a language, a foreign language. Now, if you enter learning a foreign language language expecting all of it to come easy, what's going to happen? You're going to fail. You're going to give up. You're going to take those vocab cards, and you're going to burn them. (laughs) I've done it a few times. It's not fun. you're going to fail because you're entering into something that's really difficult. Expectations matter. If you expect learning a language to take diligence, consistency, effort, striving at memorization, right, drills, dissecting grammar, if you expect that, you're prepared better to enter into it. Think, of, think about it with um, running a marathon. Now, if you expect... Now, some of you are just laughing because you're like, I would never expect to do that, period. (laughs) But if you expect to run miles 17 through 26 easily, what's going to happen? You're going to fail. He's my, you're going to fail guy. I like this. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to fail. Your expectations really matter. And even somebody who's really well-trained expects to hit a wall, as, as they would call it in marathon running, right? They expect to get into a deep, dark place where it hurts. And that's part of the fun of it, right, is pressing through that. If you don't expect that, you're not going to make it. Expectations really matter. Jesus is laying some pretty powerful expectations for us here. What is our expectation as followers of Jesus? We are certain to face troubles. Tribulation is an inevitability. Suffering is unavoidable. Now, just pause. Did you really hear what I just said? (laughs) Did I really hear what I just said? I think we get persuaded sometimes, somehow, that a Christian life is going to be a life of less trouble. And of course, there's some sense of truth in that. If you operate according to God's wisdom, there will be blessings that come with that, right? Um, if, if you don't steal, you won't spend the rest of your life in jail, right? There's goodness to that. Um, but I want to help us think for a few minutes here on how the, the fact of the matter is, the Christian life is a double dose of trouble. Not half, double. Let's think about that for a second. It really comes down to what Jesus means when he says, in this world, you. 
in this world, you. What does it mean when Jesus says, in this world? Now, world, in the Gospel of John, I know we haven't been studying through John, so some of this takes a little bit of work. In, in, in John, when he uses the word world, he means something particular. And let's get that particular thing in our head. Um, go ahead and turn back to John chapter 1. Let's just dance in John for a second here. If you don't get there in time, that is perfectly fine. John 1.10. I'll just start in 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Speaking of Jesus and his incarnation, right? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Wait. The world is a, a knowing agent, right? Knows or doesn't know. Turn to John 7, verse 7. Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus. The world doesn't know Jesus. The world doesn't love Jesus. It hates him. In, in John's gospel, we could go to all sorts of other places, but I think that proves the point. When John uses the word world, he, he has a particular thing in mind. He doesn't, he doesn't mean just the created substance, the earth. Um, he means the sinful human system that is in rebellion against God. He means this broken, morally bankrupt world that we inhabit of people in rebellion against their creator. The, the world in which we live hates and rejects Jesus and does what is evil. Um, it's pervasive. This rebellion is society-wide, across all of our cultures. It pervades all of our political systems, all of our philosophy, all of our education, all of our structures of authority, all of our families, all of our hearts. The, the world is that broken human system that Jesus entered, including all of us, right? He entered into this broken rebellion as God incarnate to save some out of it, to transform individuals from it. The world is a moral agent. It's a place of rejection of Jesus. First John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. Does that mean we can't, like, love trees? <laughs> we can't enjoy the things God has given to us? No, John's talking about something particular here. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You guys getting the picture? This is the world Jesus is talking about. Back to John sixteen thirty three. Jesus says, In this world... In this place, with these desires, with this rebellion, with this corruption, this brokenness, you will have tribulation. That's the world Jesus is talking about. Now let's think about that in two terms here. All people 
and then Christians in particular. All people, all people face this trouble. Living in a sin-cursed world stinks, period. Right? No matter how much the sinful man can delude themselves to think that this is a great kingdom, it stinks. All human beings, no matter if they're with Christ or not, suffer in this world. Are destroyed by this world. Get carried along and swept along to death by this world. It's a bad place to live. It's not how God created the earth to operate. All people face trouble. Because all of us live as sinful people in a sinful world. So the world understands the brokenness. They see it in their family. They see it in their own desires. They see it in the, in the societal systems, right? They see racism in the society like we would expect that. We live in a broken, God-hating world. All people suffer in this world. Us included. So what's unique about the Christian life then? What's unique about the Christian life is this world hates us as they hated our Savior. We get a double dose of trouble, not half. What's harder in a rapids, you know, water, rapids? What's harder, laying on your back and floating with it or standing up in it and walking up? Anybody ever do that? Anybody ever do that? I've done lots of that Well, then this trip leading. Uh, even, an, even a s- slow-moving stream is shockingly powerful. Um, a decent-moving stream is catastrophic. You die in seconds if you're not careful. Standing in a river means you face trouble. Flowing with the river means you face less trouble. Those who are still in the world who aren't following Jesus, they face less trouble because they flow with the currents of the time. They flow with the ideas, with the social structures, with the loves and desires. A Christian is called to stand and walk the opposite direction. So we would expect it to be harder. We would expect that having different desires and going after different aims and claiming different authority, being a distinct people would be harder. Jesus says just a chapter later in in his prayer in John 17, He says, speaking of his disciples and us included, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see the identity shift there? We're not of the world, but just wait. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Make them distinct by your word as you sent me into the world. How did that turn out for Jesus? So I have sent them into the world. We're made distinct. Not to go flee and concave and build boundaries around the difficulty, but to run into the madness, into the chaos, into the brokenness as distinct people bearing a distinct message. And that will bring a double dose of hurt. And so this expectation, what do we come into this expecting? What do we expect the Christian life to be like? We were sent into enemy territory, not to hide, but to stand there and proclaim the victory of another. It's not going to go well. Thankfully, by God's grace, it doesn't go as catastrophic all the time as it could, right? We're grateful for the way he restrains sin. Um, but our expectations are important. In a world of falsehood, 
We're called to believe and proclaim truth. In a world that rejected Jesus, we're called to be just like him. So as Christians, we need to understand that our trouble is certain. As a member of this world, it's certain. As a member of humanity, I should say, we are called out. But as one who is called out, it is doubly certain. Now this world is against us, not for us, as it was against Jesus. Is, is that your expectation? Do you see the Christian life as a double dose of trouble? And, and the reason that matters is because if we don't have that expectation, what's going to happen to us when we face the reality of it? Yeah, we're going to get so discouraged. Think about it. If you're studying a language and it gets really hard, are you, what, do you, what are you left with? Well, am I dumb? Am I doing this wrong? Is something off? Is this teacher terrible? Right? You're, you're left with discouraging thoughts. But if you expect it, you can persevere into it. Same with the Christian life. If, if we expect life to not be hard and we enter into it that way, when it becomes hard inevitably, we would think we've been doing something wrong. Let me get really personal. If you parent, expect parenting to lead to your kids' joyful reception of Christ in every instance, walking in maturity, getting great grades, being a great athlete, whatever it is you lump that into, what's going to happen when your kid isn't that? You're going to think it's a failure of your parenting? You're going to think your kid's uniquely busted? No, we expect it because we know the world we live in. Life is hard, and when it shows itself to be hard, we're not necessarily doing something wrong. It could be that we're doing things right, that we're actually representing Jesus in a sin-cursed world. And Jesus here, he's preparing his disciples to recognize that what they're about to face wasn't a, a failure of the plan. It wasn't as if something went awry. When they see their, Savior, their Lord hanging on that cross, it isn't that God's plans got thwarted and somehow because of Judas and his cronies that things went all wrong. No. He wants them to recognize that they can have peace. Nothing is off about this situation. In fact, it's the mission he's on. Jesus wants his disciples to see that when they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, it's not reason in that day to be discouraged that something's busted. It's reason in that day to rejoice and be at peace. If we get this expectation wrong, we are doomed to discouragement. I know you feel it because we do it, don't we? We get our eyes set on the wrong things and the wrong expectations, and we find ourselves falling into discouragement and fear. So it's important here to understand the gravity of this first aspect of Jesus' statement here, this first certainty. If we get this first certainty wrong, the joy of the second one isn't going to be powerful enough. First certainty. In Jesus, you will face trouble. Let's move to our second certainty. What is our hope here? I talked about how uh, peace is that internal rest in the midst of external unrest because we rest in Jesus. Where is that because coming from? 
Certainty number two. In Jesus, you will finally triumph. In Jesus, you will finally triumph. Jesus says, but take heart. Literally, have courage. Have courage. Be strengthened. I think it's parallel with peace in the previous statement, right? Have peace. Why? I have overcome the world. Take heart. Be at peace. I have overcome the world. Disciples of Jesus will be able to cut through the fear of life when they understand the certainty of Jesus' triumph. All right, so let's think about that for a little bit. What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? And I think it's extra interesting notice. I mean, just make an observation here. Where is John 16 in the storyline? Pre-death, pre-resurrection, pre-ascension. And what is the tense of Jesus' statement? I have overcome the world. Now that is a very interesting statement. Jesus is so certain of his victory. His victory is so sure that he's already speaking of it in the past tense. It's as if at the, the very moment he enters humanity, the game is done. Or you could go further back. Before the creation was formed, the game was done. Battle won. It was just a matter of fleshing it out, playing out the drama. Jesus can say, I have overcome before any of the typical events we associate with Jesus conquering. But we associate with his conquering for good reason. Let's look at some of them. Let's look at some key texts here to help us think through this. Hebrews chapter 4. Go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. says, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now that's a peace-inducing truth right there in itself. In every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I have overcome the world. How has Jesus overcome the world? according to Hebrews 4.15. That world, with its desires, with its rebellion against God, Jesus rejected it. He fulfilled what mankind was called to fulfill. Yet without sin, not a trace of caving to temptation, not a trace of rebellion against the Father's will, not a trace of false desires, false motivation. Jesus overcame the world because he came and did what no human being could otherwise do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And so, even just the motivation here. Because he's done that, where can we find peace? 
in him. He knows how to withstand temptation. He knows how to pray for us. He knows how to care for us. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians fifteen, fifty-five through fifty-seven. Well, I'll go further back. Starting in fifty-four, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does Jesus defeat the power of sin, which is the law, and therefore defeat the power of death? How does he do it? Well, first, he dies. He dies taking on our failure, paying the price for our inability. Paying the price for our unholiness, our uncleanness, all those worldly desires that led us astray. Jesus died in order to swallow up death. The man had to die. A man had to defeat it because it was the inheritance of man. And so Jesus steps in our place, does what we can't do, and leads us through it. Not just as an example, not just as somebody who died really well, but as someone who death couldn't hold. He swallows it up in victory. And so we get the death, we get the resurrection, newness of life, so that the imperishable can, or the perishable can put on imperishable, so that this earthly body full of these corrupt desires can be done away with someday. So the victory of Jesus leads us from his perfect life to his death on our behalf, to his resurrection, the inevitability of the resurrection. Perfection can't be kept in the grave. And he brings us with him. Look at 1 John 2, 17. 1 John 2, 17. It's the very next verse that we uh, already referenced. This world with its desires contrary to the Father, contrary to the love of the Father, not from the Father, verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a helpful verse for us. Jesus speaks in the past tense of the victory. Here it speaks in the present tense. We're in a season of passing. The world is passing away. Look a few verses earlier at verse 8. Jesus is talking about the commandment to love. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in Jesus and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That imagery, light and darkness, does it remind you of something? John chapter 1. What does it say? Who's the light? Jesus. And he has come into the world. And how does the darkness respond to it? Well, it hates it, but it can't overcome it. You turn a light on in a room, what happens to the darkness? It wins. <laughs> it's amazing. It wins every time. The light comes into the world. When God enters human brokenness, when he takes on our bodies, when he takes on the relationship with him that we were designed to have, when he takes on the obedience we were designed to, to do, nothing can happen but victory. Death can't overcome that. Darkness can't overcome that light. And the amazing thing I see here in First in John 2 is when that light comes into us, Guess what happens? The darkness flees. The darkness in us can't overcome that light. So the love that we have received from the Father through Christ will be shining. It's amazing. This I have overcome the world statement Jesus is making isn't just like he's done something out there. He's done something in here. And this is the beauty. Let's, let's go back to Jesus' statement here in John 14. Sorry, John 16. I just want you to notice two key words here. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. He says it again. In a different way, in the next statement, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Christian life has the possibility of peace, not the inevitability of peace. And that possibility is anchored in the statement, in me. Peace is not something that's just, it's, it just doesn't happen randomly in the Christian life. It comes from us recognizing who we are in Christ. It comes from us remembering and fighting to know, clinging to what it means to belong to Jesus. What it means to belong to the light. The, the light is going to conquer. How is that hope for us? How does that bring us peace? We're in it. We're being carried along into it. The truth is going to conquer. How, how does that bring us peace? The truth will win. We are in Jesus, and therefore our hope is in Jesus. And, and we can only experience that insofar as we're clinging to it. That's why Jesus gives the possibility here. I'm saying these things that you may have peace. The Christian life is a fight for faith. It's not something 
Thankfully, God does mature us sometimes in ways that we don't understand and didn't intentionally do, but it's something we cling to. It's something we place our hope in day by day. It's something we hold on to. It's something that we're striving to grow in our knowledge of. That light that's going to dispel the darkness needs to overwhelm our senses. Or else our, our peace isn't going to come. It's a peace in his victory, in his overcoming. So I just want to, I want to encourage you guys. We have the possibility to live life in a restful internal state. A state of hopeful worship, reception of his goodness, a state of confidence. You don't have to see the way the culture is going and respond with internal instability. If you don't fight it, you will respond that way. You don't have to. Parent, you don't have to go down the path of clinging to the performance of your kid to such an extent that when they fail, you freak out. You can go down that way, but you don't have to. There is the potential for you to live a life of peace. And it's a potential that's locked up in our union with Christ, in our understanding that we are with him. His victory is our victory. His future, our future. His certainty, our certainty. Cling to it. What Jesus is calling his disciples to here, and and that's our hope. I, I want us to be a people who have this peace. You want to be a people who have this peace. Jesus wants us to be a people who have this peace. Let's fight for it by clinging to him. Let's pray. Lord, you know the frailty of our hearts. You know what it's like to walk through this frightful world, to face the wickedness of man head on, to face the temptation towards sin. And so you're able to sympathize with us in our weakness. You didn't expect your disciples to see your crucifixion, your leaving them, and naturally respond with confidence. You knew they would struggle, as you know we struggle. So we just praise you for giving us reason to hope for directing our hearts to peace, for guiding us. And we, we ask that in those moments when our hearts are prone to forget and be fearful, that you would renew us, that you would bring these truths back to our mind, that you would help us to fight for faith in this fearful world so that we could be a shining city on a hill so that we could represent your rest, the certainty of your victory in our own hearts. That we would be a people who the world can look at and see, wow, they understand what it means to be at peace. How is that possible? And we'd be able to speak of Christ. And for this in your name, amen.